Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. This episode of The Sharon Tapes was made possible by our backers on Seed and Spark. Cassandra Casablanca, Catherine Huerta, Drew Rutherford, and E.L. Thackray. If you'd like to support the show as well, please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner. For as little as $5 a month, you get early access to ad-free versions of episodes, a special weekly behind-the-scenes podcast, and patron-only AMA live streams. Before we get started, this episode contains depictions of loss and grief, financial hardship, guilt and self-destructive behavior, and loud noises. Content warnings and a full transcript are available in the show notes. Yes. Yes, I understand it's been a while. I've been waiting to hear back from... Well, if you recall our last conversation, the police haven't found any proof that Anna's dead. I'm not in a position to... No, that isn't an excuse. It's a statement of fact. Unless she's declared dead, her will isn't in effect, and I can't make decisions on her behalf. It's as simple as that. If that's how you feel about it, I suggest you get in touch with my lawyer. Good night. Poultice press. Going to need a poultice by the time I'm done with you. Anthony Purdue speaking... Uh, Purdue Literary Services. Who is this? Uh, Miss Valentini. To what do I owe the... No, I don't have any updates for the press. Anna is still missing. Oslo County PD is still investigating. I will issue a press release as soon as any of that changes and not a second before. That's a leading question, and you know it. I do not intend to have her declared dead. I do not have the legal authority to declare her dead, especially as I stand to inherit her estate. There's this little thing called conflict of interest that I have to... Uh-huh. Miss mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Valentini, you are aware I know all of this already? Anna disappeared over a year ago. Are things really that slow this week? What do my finances have to do with anything? How did you even know about that? This lease is private. The state of my company is my own concern, Miss Valentini, and I assure you that if you print any of this, you will be hearing from my legal counsel. Yes, that is a threat. Good night, Miss Valentini. No more calls tonight. Oh, Anna, that's more than enough for a Tuesday. What the fuck is it now?
Hello? Alex, were you expecting a delivery? Oh, right. <laughs> They're out today. Lake Isabella. What the hell is this doing here? Someone must have dropped it off. What are you? Holy shit! Maria. Yes. Hi. This is Anthony. Anthony Perdue. Right, of course. You have my number in your... Never mind. Is this a good time? New Mexico? What are you doing all the way out there? Doesn't matter. Maria, listen. I just got a package at my house, and you're not going to believe who it's from. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. at 5.21 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Kate and I are currently on assignment outside Fresno, California. Our first mission since Bill and Maria left. It feels strange without them here. Bill's been there from the start and Maria... Well, Maria's Maria. Our brief was pretty simple. Explore the area around Fresno and ascertain the possibility of supernatural origin for the entities known as Nightcrawlers. Yeah, we're looking for the Fresno Nightcrawlers, of all things. <laughs> God, his face isn't even trying to hide the fact that they're just throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. <clears throat> uh, the Fresno Nightcrawlers, if they exist, are short, pale, humanoid figures that look like a pair of pale legs with extremely short arms, or no arms at all. There have been several sightings of the cryptids on home security footage and motion sensor cameras, first and most notable in Fresno, hence the name. There's also a fairly convincing video from Yosemite National Park about 70 miles north of here and one possible sighting in Poland, though that one's still debatable. So far, there haven't been any in-person encounters with the Nightcrawlers, but it seems like Caldwell wants to change that by sending her supernatural lodestones out looking for them. Uh, notably, in all three potential sightings, the Nightcrawlers travel in pairs of two. 
one smaller and one larger. Uh, People have theorized that these might be a parent and child, or that they're sexually dimorphic pairs of mates, or any number of other reasons for the consistent pairing, but no one really knows. All we have are a few grainy videos. But if we manage to catch a glimpse of them tonight, then maybe... Why are you still doing that? Doing what? (laughs) Recording your logs. Why aren't you? Sam, you're the only one who's ever been recording them. The rest of us weren't so keen on giving Isfa access to our private thoughts. Oh, uh, right. Uh, I just didn't notice. I, I got used to recording them, you know? And honestly, I haven't been handing over my tapes for a while now. So that little intro of yours... Yeah, it's just force of habit. Huh. So, uh, you seem to know a lot about these things. That's way more than I got from the briefing. Not really. Uh, I just managed to do a quick search while you were driving. To tell the truth, most of what I talk about on these tapes comes from Wikipedia. (gasps) Not Detective Samuel Isaac Bailey. (laughs) Not a detective anymore, Kate. And I was never that good at it to begin with. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. You're no, no, actually... it's fine. I, I came to terms with it months ago. I thought I wanted to be a detective for years, but honestly, I think I just read too many murder mysteries as a kid. The only good thing that ever came out of joining the police force was meeting Alan and Bill, I guess. Have you always been interested in this stuff as well? What stuff? You know, nightcrawlers, cryptids, the supernatural. (laughs) Not at all. I used to think this was all bullshit. But I thought, you know, with what happened to you as a kid, you'd think that, uh, I don't know. You'd think, but... I wasn't your sister. I couldn't accept it, so I repressed a lot of stuff just to make it through the day. Not just about the lake. Huh. No, I I did wonder, but I I didn't want to ask if you were... Yeah. Took a while to figure out, but... Yeah. I I, I get it. It... It takes time to accept stuff like that. I've... uh, Always had my doubts about myself, what I believe, who I love. What do you mean? If you want to tell me, I mean... No, no, it's... uh, Yeah, I mean... Yeah. um, I'm still figuring it out, but... um, I I know I'm not straight, at least. There were... uh, a couple times in college that I, um, well, I didn't know what to make of them back then, but, um, I'm pretty sure I'm bi, maybe pan. Um, I don't know. (laughs) What? Nothing, just not surprised. About what? Everyone in our little group. People I've made friends with have always been a bit, you know. Are we 
Are we friends? Is that what we are? Um, do you want to listen to another tape while we're just waiting? I mean, uh, might as well. Nothing else to do. Stone on tape, then. Been too long already. I've always had an interest in the wee folk. The world hidden from the eyes of men in the deep forests and high mountains, far from the lights and bustle of humankind. My parents accepted this about me, even if they never understood it, and left me most of my own devices to seek it out. They did have one rule, though. Never go out after dark. I was a foolish, impetuous child, but I never dared to break that rule. Much as I wanted to meet with the fairies, I knew that those who I'd meet after nightfall weren't those who I'd wish to meet alone and helpless. So I was always fast asleep long before the knucklevy and shelly coats began to roam the moors. My ma didn't raise a fool, says I. And so, I grew up. Grew older. This isn't the place for a biography, so I'll leave most of those years out of it. Suffice to say, I learned my letters, went off to university, came back, and began to write about the creatures I'd always loved. Made a name for myself, made my fortune, moved back into this home when my ma and dad died. Kept writing, got a couple of wards, started looking further and further afield for the dwellings of the fairies and the monsters of myth, and found them. I always kept my distance, though, and never went out at night. The knocks and bumps at my windows and doors after I'd gone to bed told me all I needed to know about the things I feared to find. Before I knew it, the century had changed. Even up here it changed, and soon I had a computer and a cell phone and a fibre-optic line straight to the rest of the world, and I didn't want any of it. I've never had much patience for other people and no time for the inane chatter and gossip of the pub. Now those empty words were being traded day and night on every chat room and social media on the planet. Got dragged into on too many arguments about my work with strangers before I realised it wasn't healthy and unplugged the damn thing. Time went on, money changed hands, Parsons Press bought out my old publisher and my contract with it and I ended up having to fly to London far more than I ever wanted to. And from the looks on their faces whenever I walked in, it was more often than they wanted to as well. It was on one of those trips that I first met you, Anna. We came across the pond for a book tour, though you never made it north of the borders, so can't you say it was much of a tour. But by some turn of fate, I was visiting Parsons on the day after you got there. I forget what the meeting was about, some contract dispute or new royalty share I had to sign off on. I didn't much care. My books have always sold well to a very small audience, and I didn't see much need to change that, despite what my agent says. I do just fine. Anyway, I heard you were in town, and I decided I'd best see if I could find a way to meet you. I'd read a few of your books, 
I've never been much of a reader when it comes to horror, but something in your style caught me. Certain turns of phrase and ways of describing things. It made me think that maybe you'd touched the same world I had. A darker corner of it, maybe, but still, I had to know. So I grabbed a copy of your schedule from the secretary and headed out to the old Warner's bookstore in the driving rain. I hope you'll not take this the wrong way, but I was sorely disappointed. Your eyes were bloodshot and it looked like a cold draft could have knocked you right over. But still, I had a picture of you in my mind. And it wasn't a jet-lagged tourist barely managing not to laugh at my accent. I got your signature on my old dog-eared copy of Anathema and soon after headed across the street to the one half-decent pub in London for a rusty nail and a pie. It was two in the afternoon, but I was pissing down and I had a flight in three hours. Not enough time to get a proper meal and a cab to the airport, not in London at least. Besides, I knew the pub would be quiet that hour, so I ordered my food and settled into a seat by the window with my drink to watch the rain come down in silence. I've always loved the rain. I'm not being caught in it, I'm not some romantic idiot, but watching it, the way it paints the world in shining darkness and makes every point of light into a line of fire. Even the maze of concrete and steel London's become is turned to glass by the rain, and I can bear to watch the endless lines of cars and trucks go by without worrying about what they're doing to the only home we have. Now the wild places are disappearing one by one until there's no corner of the planet we haven't catalogued and paved over. And we're building a future that can't last. But like I said, I wasn't worrying about that. The pie was overpriced and soggy like everything in this part of town. But warm enough, I didn't mind too much. As I ate, my gaze kept drifting up to the little strip of sky I could see between the edge of the window and the roof of the old Warners across the street. I didn't know why. Far as I could see, the clouds were a solid wall of grey with patches of shadow where the rain fell heavier. Nothing I hadn't seen a hundred times or more. Yet my eyes kept finding their way up to it. And eventually I just let them sit there as I stared up at the sky. I've never had the best vision, and I've needed glasses ever since I was five, but... I let my eyes sit there, unfocused. And then I stopped. There was something there. Something I hadn't noticed before. You know how these things are. How impossible it is to actually capture them in words. Something's always lost when you try. So best I can say is, it was a line. A line of darkness cutting through the clouds. Or maybe a dark line of clouds nestled in the crook of the storm. I blinked, but now that I'd seen it, I couldn't ignore the pattern. It was subtle, but impossible to miss once you knew it was there. A perfectly straight line going on for as far as I could see. Which, to be honest, wasn't too far, considering where I was sitting. But it still held my gaze longer than it should have. At first I thought it might have been some kind of contrail, but it wasn't blowing away in the wind like it should have. 
It didn't line up with any of the airports, and if it didn't come from a plane landing or taking off, it should have been far above the clouds and out of sight. There wasn't enough sunlight to cast a shadow that dark, and even if there was, the line should have moved at least a little bit during the full hour I stared up at it, my drink forgotten and my pie gone cold. I only realised how long I'd been watching it when the door to the Warners burst open across the street and you ran out, holding your coat over your head to keep the rain off as you rushed to the car. I realised I'd miss my flight if I stayed any longer, so I paid my bill, caught a cab, and made it to Heathrow just before the gates closed. It was long past dark by the time I was driving the long road back to Inverness. The plane had been fighting a headwind all the way to Edinburgh, and by the time we landed I was shaken half to hell and wanted nothing more than to be home and straight to bed. I still had a few hours to go, but the promise of home and sleep kept me going as I stared out into the dark, hypnotised by the beat of wipers thudding back and forth. My mind began to wander, and I started to think about that strange, dark line of clouds again. For some reason, the idea of ley lines came into my head, an old theory about ancient and perfectly straight lines between historical sites that was borrowed by the Earth Mysteries movement and then thoroughly debunked. I'd never believed in them myself. I hadn't seen any sign of them in all my searching for the wee folk, and if anyone would be attuned to those energies, it would be the Fae. I find the skeptic's explanation more probable, that given enough historical sites, you can draw straight lines through any number of them that seem significant, but aren't they? But even so, that line of shadows made me think of them. Lines of power converging somewhere over London. On the flight back, I tried to catch a look at them again, but I was stuck in a middle seat and couldn't see out the window too well. From what I could see, though, it looked like one of them continued all the way from London to Edinburgh, unbroken, never shifting direction or growing lighter or darker, even as the sun went down. Curious, I glanced up, not really expecting to see anything only to find the same dark line drawn against the clouds while the thin moon illuminated the rest of the sky. The clouds were falling apart to the east, but that dark line endured, though it seemed to stop a little ways north in a patch of muddy heath I knew well from my childhood expeditions. It was a few miles out of the way and would take nearly an extra hour to reach, but I knew I wouldn't make it back to bed before midnight anyway. I turned off the highway. My old rover made it farther than I thought it would, but eventually I had to give it up and go on foot. I grabbed a heavy-duty torch and switched it on, knowing better than to trust myself to navigate the swampy ground in the dark. The rain had finally quit completely, so I didn't need my coat. I just started off in the direction of that dark line, following it to wherever it ended. The moor was washed in an eerie, late-night stillness that was utterly unfamiliar. I kept my eyes screwed open, watching for any sign of devilry. The fairy lights, an earthen mound that seemed out of place, the sound of piping where there should be no music. I didn't expect to actually hear it, though. Strange as this all was, it didn't feel like the wee folk. This was something else. But I heard music nonetheless. Not the unearthly pipes and fiddles of the fairies. 
was something I knew all too well. Land of Hope and Glory by Edward fucking Elgar. As I got closer and shone my torch where it was coming from, I realised it sounded muffled because I was hearing it through a door. A plain, panelled wooden door in a basic wooden frame, sitting perfectly level in the middle of an empty moor. There was tall grass around the bottom of it, but no mud or dirt on the wood itself. Like it had just been set there a moment ago for me to find. Confused, and more than a little nervous, I'll admit, I tried the handle. It didn't look like there was a deadbolt, but it was locked fast. I frowned, then tried again, yanking on it with all my strength. I'll not deny that tending my own land has left me stronger than most academics, and with a frame that thin I should have been able to rip it right off its hinges. If nothing else, it wasn't mounted to any kind of foundation. Should have toppled over the moment I put my weight behind it. But it didn't. The door stayed locked, and I was left scratching my head as to what this all meant. I looked back up at the sky. Just like I thought, the line had followed all the way from London, ended just above my head, thousands of feet above where that impossible door stood. But the more I looked at it, the less it reminded me of a ley line. Ley lines were supposed to be terrestrial, etched in the earth. Whatever it was, it was not of this earth, and had no place upon it. I knew that much. It was more like I was seeing something greater, something bigger than the sky, its movements pressed into the clouds like a hand against a bedsheet. I suddenly remembered reading Flatland as a kid, how the characters in a two-dimensional world perceived a sphere moving through the higher dimensions as patterns they could not understand or explain. I began to wonder if these strange, radiating lines weren't something similar. A projection of a being in a higher dimension, moving through our world in ways I couldn't understand. Of course, I had no way of knowing if that were true or not. Not from where I was standing. So, instead, I tried the door again, rattling the handle more out of curiosity than anything then jumped back when something banged against it from the other side, screaming in rage and fear. And I didn't know what to do, so I just stood there. That scream sounded human, but I knew all too well how sounds and appearances can be used to lure the unaware. Every instinct pounded into me by my map, screamed for me to run, to get back to my car and drive home where it was light and warm and safe. But instead... I reached out and knocked. There was no reply, so I tried again. Two knocks together, a pause, then two knocks again. It was an old code from my childhood, one that I'd used to signal my friends that all was well, that it was safe to come out. Whatever was on the other side matched it. It was faint, but I could almost hear the cautious desperation in that sound. Something I doubted the wee folk could truly imitate. Someone was trapped on the other side of that door and needed my help. And much as I keep to myself, I've never been one to ignore a call for aid, which has got me in trouble more than once. I just hope this wouldn't be one of those times. Not sure how much strength I'd need to break the frame, I wheeled back and kicked at the boat with all my strength. But I shouldn't have bothered 
the door had somehow come unlocked, and I stumbled through it and out into a brightly lit corridor I didn't recognize. The silence of the moors was replaced by the roar of applause and cheering behind me, and I looked back to see the inside of the Royal Albert Hall, stuffed to bursting for the proms. With everything else happening, I'd all but forgotten that was going on. And standing there alone, looking as confused as I felt, was you, Anna Sheridan, same as I'd seen you only a few hours before. It looked like you were just about to turn around, and I suddenly realised you might think I'd followed you here if you saw me. So I rushed out. I didn't want you to think I was a stalker, and plus, I'd made a rather clumsy entrance myself, and I felt somewhat embarrassed. No one noticed me on my way out of the hall, and I made my way back out onto the streets of London for the second time that day. Looking up, I could see the dark lines indeed converged over where I stood. But as I watched, the one that stretched away north suddenly broke like a string under too much weight, unraveling along its path and vanishing like it had never been there. The others... I didn't have time to count them, this all happened almost too fast to see, broke a moment later, like they were all sharing the load of some enormous weight and could no longer bear it now that there were fewer strands to take the load. I felt no small measure of pride to see it go, but then I realised that probably meant that door was no longer standing in the moors and I had no other way of getting back to Inverness tonight. Annoyed and exhausted, I called myself another cab and checked into the cheapest hotel I could find at short notice, which was far too expensive for me, even on a good day. Between that and a rail ticket back to Edinburgh to get my car back, the whole trip set me back a long ways. Not that I mind so much now. When I finally met you properly about three years later, it was like we'd known each other our entire lives. I've never had an overabundance of friends. But I think it's safe to say that finding someone like you this late in life is a rare gift. I wouldn't trade that for anything. <sighs> we landed at LAX this morning. I didn't ask Maria to pick me up this time. I didn't want her to see me like this. I haven't been sleeping since we left Bobby Agora and this... God. I don't know how I'm going to tell her what happened. I don't know how to. I don't know if I can tell her anything. I've just been listening to this tape over and over again trying to decide what to do, and it's... Craig agreed to let me record him on our last trip to Aberdeen. I never got his whole story, and Maria wanted to hear it as well, so he finally agreed to put it down on tape. I always... Craig always felt like a mentor to me. He never saw himself that way, but he spent his whole life chasing the impossible, just like I did. Except he knew when to stop, when to turn back. 
I always thought, I hoped he would outlive me, that he'd die peacefully at home in his sleep like normal people do. He deserved that much. But that isn't what happened. I brought him to Poland. I asked him to come because I needed someone I could trust. Someone who'd look after me after what Ren did. And he died because of me. It has to mean something. It has to. Craig can't die for nothing. I have to make it worthwhile, no matter how scared I am. Every night since I left the mountain, I've dreamed of my own death. I can't sleep, but I still dream. I still see it, even when my eyes are open. I see a desert and a tunnel and a door in the earth. I see a gun firing. And then I'm not there anymore. I was afraid to say it before. I was afraid that would make it true, make it real. But I have to make this pain worth it, even if it costs me everything. These dreams have already taken too much. about sums it up, doesn't it? Anna saw her disappearance. She thought she was going to die. Yeah. She knew what was going to happen when she went out to the bunker. And she still went. I guess she felt like, like she had to. I know how that feels. Losing people... It- makes you do some dangerous things. Yeah, I guess it does. But why would she go down there in the first place? If she knew Morrison would be waiting for her, even if she thought her prophecies were inevitable, she went down there of her own free will. Why? Sim, when OCPD found her van... Did they find a gun in the glove compartment? No, they... Shit. You don't think Anna tried to kill... What the... Who is that? It isn't Ren? No, might just be a telemarketer. Hello? Hey, this is Anthony Purdue. Your sister's agent? Oh, uh... Hi, Anthony. It's, uh... It's been a while. Um... How did you get this number? This is, uh, a work phone... What happened? Did you hear from her? Not exactly. Someone delivered a package to my house just now. No return address, no shipping label, so it must have been delivered personally. Guess what's inside? I I really have no idea. A manuscript. A handwritten, loose-leaf manuscript like I haven't seen in years. That's great, Anthony, but I don't see what this... It's called Echoes, Kate, and it has your sister's name on the byline. What? 
last time I saw a manuscript like this, it was Anna's original draft of Anathema. I recognize her handwriting anywhere. I... I thought she stopped doing longhand after her accident. So did I, but apparently she's doing it again. Anna's alive. She's alive and writing, and for all I know, she could have been the one who dropped this off. I called Maria to confirm, but she said she's driving from somewhere in New Mexico and that you'd want to know. Anna's alive. What? Uh, what's the manuscript about? Did she leave a note? No. Uh, I just assumed it was more of her usual... What's, what's wrong? It's all rambled. Just alphabet soup all over the pages, the entire thing. Could it be some kind of cipher? Who is that? He's a, a friend of the family. It's okay. Do you think it might be written in code? Was there any kind of address on the box? Any label? Just one that says Lake Isabella, California. Handwritten too, but not by Anna. Hey, Anthony, can I call you back later? Something just came up. Uh, sure thing, Kate. Uh, good talking with you. Yeah, same. Bye. Sam. That's where Anna's house is, isn't it? That's where I saw her back in October. It's only a couple hours away, right? I know we're on a mission, Finding but... Anna is the mission, Sam. Screw the nightcrawlers. <laughs> Screw the nightcrawlers. What do you think we're looking for? I don't know. Doors that lead somewhere they shouldn't. Weird noises or voices. Uh, honestly, I just kind of stumbled onto it last time. Where did you see her last time? In here. There was a corridor leading off to, well, uh, a beach that shouldn't exist. That's where I saw Anna. In there? It looks like a... A linen closet, yeah. That's what it's supposed to be. I was gonna say it looked like my old office. (laughs) Ready? Probably not. So, just a linen closet this time? Yeah, just a linen closet. Hey, what's this? Is that a key? Yeah, she had it taped to the wall in there. Why would she... Here, let me see that. Why? Her bedroom was locked the last time I was here and I didn't have the key. If I'm right... Looks like you were. Oh, God! Kate, are, are you okay? This thing's so wind took it right out of my hand. Taking long enough to get here. Who? Who are you? You don't recognize me? After all this time? Or were you expecting someone else? I was expecting my sister. Well, Anna isn't available at the moment. I guess I'll just have to settle for her best friend. Wait, you're... You can't be. Amelia Ray Sterling, at your service.
The Sheridan Tapes, Episode 72, The Quiet Sense of Something Lost. Starring Matthew Chaconis as Anthony Perdue, Trevor Van Winkle as Sam Bailey, Virginia Spots as Kate Sheridan, Paul Warren as Craig Donnell, Ernie Lee Chaconis as Anna Sheridan, and Meredith Nudo as Amy Sterling, with original music by Jesse Hogan. Written by Trevor Van Winkle and produced by Virginia Spots, with dialogue editing and sound design by Trevor Van Winkle. Visit thesheridantapes.com to view additional content, rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and connect with us on Twitter at Sheridan Tapes and on Instagram at The Sheridan Tapes. I'm Trevor Van Winkle, this is Homestead on the Corner, and you're listening to... The Sheridan Tapes. minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.